This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Emmanuel Dat, mate, thanks very much for coming back on uh, on Talk Your Book, fresh from, from holidays. I thought before we get into your stock pick of choice, if you could talk to us about Dat Capital and, and how you guys look to invest. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Chris. So um, Dat Capital, um, we're a boutique uh, Melbourne-based fund. And uh, we're an absolute return fund that focuses on achieving uh, double-digit returns um, every financial year. And um, yeah, we've been doing uh, very successfully, and uh, we've we've more than um, uh, almost doubled our our promise to our investors um, since inception, which is a great place to be. And you managed to do the double digits last financial year, I believe, which is no mean feat. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we achieved a. Uh, positive uh, financial return uh, in the last financial year um, in the low teens. And um, since inception, we've done uh, about 17% per annum. That's awesome. And uh, and what stock did you want to talk about today? So today I wanted to talk about Whitehaven Coal, which is uh, an ASX listed thermal coal player. And maybe before we get into the nuts and bolts of, of Whitehaven, talk to us about the thermal coal market overall. Maybe illustrate just how strong it's been over the last 12 to 18 months for, for those that haven't been following it as closely. Yeah, sure. So I think that um, <clears throat> probably the best place to start with is to um, sort of talk about the difference between thermal coal and uh, MET or coking coal. So effectively, MET and coking coal is um, used primarily for steel production. Thermal coals are typically used for power generation. So um, a lot of investors get that confused or get the or don't really understand what the difference is. And um, so effectively, Whitehaven, uh, as I mentioned before, it's a thermal coal producer. Um, it effectively, um, uh, ex- its customers are primarily East Asian uh, customers. So Japanese, Korean sort of power plants that rely on um, high quality thermal coals. Um, don't sell anything to China, um, which is a good place to be. And um, yeah, so I think that, you know, a really interesting dynamic uh, that we've seen in the, um, just over the last month or so has been um, typically, you know, steel making coals, coking coals have been priced um, a lot higher historically than thermal coal. Um, but now we've seen over the last month that that dynamic has changed. We're actually seeing met coals are being priced significantly cheaper than thermal coals which really tells you a lot about um, how the supply and demand mismatch um, uh, sits at this point in time and i'm actually seeing um, you know some met coals that may be able to be sold into thermal markets um, starting to rotate towards being sold as thermal coal rather than being badged as they are historically which speaks to just the tightness in energy um commodities at the minute we've obviously seen it in oil albeit coming off a little bit overnight and you know the whole of europe and i guess the whole of the world wants to decrease their reliance on on russian gas um given that nuclear power plants at the quickest take 10 years to build um europe wants to get off russian gas and the solar and wind whilst can produce power can't produce the, the quantum of power or the reliability over 24 hours of a day that traditional power sources can we're seeing Germany add thermal coal plants, China adding a lot of thermal coal plants. 
is that sort of the logical step for the next 12 to 18 months while everyone really tries to decrease their reliance on Russian gas, that thermal coal plants will increase more so than, than perhaps was initially thought they would at this phase of their existence? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'd probably say that um, the situation will persist for far longer than 12 months if, um, you know, if Germany um, are going against their own um, or previous ESG principles, as, as you mentioned, uh, by restarting sort of um, previously mothballed um, thermal coal power plants, then I think that really tells you that um, the situation uh, is probably going to persist for you know, longer than we probably expect. Um, and also, I guess the other point is that, <clears throat> you know, um, cheap Russian gas has been really the, the basis of the EU economy for um, quite a long period of time. So um, I think that even if um, uh, peace was to suddenly break out um, or some sort of um, peace accord to be brokered in, in Ukraine uh, between Ukraine and Russia, uh, I don't necessarily think sanctions will be lifted in any sort of form for um, you know, some period of time. Um, but ultimately, you know, I think the EU are clearly um, trying to move away from um, its past uh, reliance on cheap Russian gas and uh, move into other forms of energy. And um, nuclear is obviously uh, one which I think uh, is fairly obvious, but as you point out, it's it's going to take um, a long time to deliver these sort of alternative forms of power. And, you know, there's a rule with, for commodity investors that you, you buy commodity stocks when they're high PEs and you sell them when they're low PEs because it usually means they're about to, to mean revert as new supply comes on to, um, to, to squash the price. Is the, is the dynamic in, in commodities like oil and thermal coal a little bit different where they're almost, they're not allowed to be owned by many institutions due to, you know, mandates or, or ESG conflictions? And certainly a lot of banks now are unable to finance projects. Do you think it, it sort of differs to that traditional rule about once you see a, a resource stock being on a low P, that's probably time to, to think about selling it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, um, uh, as you point out, I think that a lot of uh, investors and, and uh, professional investors at that, as you say, um, may be unable to uh, invest in these sort of companies due to mandates uh, or fund mandates, I should say. And, um, you know, I think uh, uh, someone you know, did some analysis around, uh, you know, how funds uh, window dress, so they might buy exposure to these uh, companies um, at the start of the month and then sell uh, prior to the month end. So it doesn't actually show up on their books when they report to their investors. So it's a bit of a cheeky way, but um, I think that truly does demonstrate how, I mean, if, if you're sort of investing in um, these commodity exposures that are being priced extremely cheaply, um, you know, in many cases um, uh, less than one times free cash flow at spot prices. Um, I think that as an investor, you're probably missing out on something if you're not, if you don't have some exposure um, to these sort of opportunities. And going to the point about, um, you know, your point about, you know, buying when um, PEs at a, a cyclical high and selling when they're low. Um, sure, I think that may have worked in the past, but I think it really, um, you, you really have to be flexible and understand what the rationale um, behind, um, yeah, uh, why why this has worked perhaps in the past, but why um, I, I don't think um, it, it's necessarily going to work in the future. 
Um, and just to give you an idea about sort of the moves in um, thermal coal in particular, um, you know, in March 2020, we had um, thermal coal priced at 50 bucks a tonne or thereabouts. Um, yeah, that, this is in US dollars. And today we see it at um, close to $400 a tonne at the front end. So um, for prices to move uh, by that quantum and sustainably, you know, stay you know, above 300 bucks, I think it's been for the last um, four or five months, um, that really does tell you that um, there's one of the demand for um, these sort of um, commodity products, but two, that um, there's just um, an object lack of supply. And um, uh, as you mentioned, yeah, I think a lot of it has been um, due to these ESG considerations, which make um, uh, permitting of new mines uh, very difficult. You know, in Australia itself, you know, the average um, uh, length of time it takes to permit a new coal mine is um, yeah, in excess of 10 years in many cases. So it's not like um, it's a tap that can be suddenly turned on. Um, but then again, you know, there are permitted, permitted development assets, but um, these uh, are reasonably difficult to finance, I'd say, in this sort of um, uh, environment. And that's why we're seeing a lot of these coal players. They're actually um, not even bothering to, to push development along because, A, they can't, they don't, they're not um, assured of development financing, A, but also when these assets are delivered, if they've already got producing assets that are being priced at one times free cash flow, then what, um, what's the point in taking all that development risk, right, and, and cost risk? You'd rather just pass on um, your cash earnings through to shareholders, you know, whether it be buybacks or through dividends or whichever um, way uh, the company chooses to. Um, I think from a capital allocation point of view, um, why would you invest in something uh, that's going to be valued at such a you know, extremely low multiple? And I know no one's got a crystal ball, but when you sort of model out these companies, what, what input do you use for thermal coal going out for two to three years? Um, well, you can use, um, uh, you know, uh, transparent sort of uh, markers, like, um, you know, the futures market is, is one um, obvious uh, um uh, point, you know, to, to, to take to these prices for. But, um, you know, even I think the really attractive element of this thesis is that um, you could assume the commodity price has been cut in half. And um, given the extremely low valuations of um, these various thermal coal players, it really barely moves the needle, you know, if they're trading at sort of one times free cash flow at current spot prices. If the um, commodity price itself is cut in half, um, they might be trading at you know, two times free cash flow, which is incredibly cheap to any other sort of sector. So it's like a nightclub multiple. Yeah. You just don't really see a lot of listed companies with those sort of multiples, do you? Exactly, exactly. And um, even at um, half the commodity price, I mean, uh, you know, at current prices, um, you know, Whitehaven has a gross margin of, you know, probably close to 80% or even over 80%, which is almost like a software company, um, uh, you know, gross margin. And um, it's just incredible that, um, you know, even at half the, even if the commodity price was cut in half, um, these would still be wildly profitable either way you look at it. And so let's maybe dig into what having a specific, where, whereabouts are their, their producing assets? Yes, yeah, sure. So um, 
Whitehaven have uh, three main assets. Um, these are all in New South Wales. So Morse Creek is sort of the flagship mine. Then you've got a couple of other smaller assets in Narrabri and Canada. And um, I think that um, Whitehaven have a real uh, advantage in being uh, with the assets being located in New South Wales. Um, you've probably seen, I think it was last week or the week before, Queensland actually uh, enacted um, uh, or increased royalties on uh, existing coal mines. And um, I think that really uh, sort of is detrimental to the industry as a whole, because, um, you know, as, as I was talking about, you know, the, in terms of the swings in prices, uh, and the commodity prices itself, um, these industries are and have been you know, historically very cyclical. But to get through the, the tough times, you have to be able to capitalise in, in the good times. But if the government's taking uh, you know, a big chunk of that upside, then it really makes it uh, a lot more difficult um, going forward. It just speaks to a supply response that's going to be slower to come again. It's just another, yeah. another handbrake, if you like, isn't it, to, to allocators of capital looking to try and potentially fix the lack of supply in this area. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, New South Wales um, is probably a far more attractive jurisdiction than Queensland, um, just because of the, this royalty interest. Um, but also, you know, for companies that are operating in New South Wales, they've suddenly been given a huge competitive advantage. Um, you know, it's no secret that um, all um, commodity companies or commodity producing companies are experiencing labour shortages. So if you're at mine in New South Wales, you know, you can effectively pay a lot more <laughs> to, to your workers um, uh, relative to a Queensland um, located mine or based mine. And, um, you know, so yeah, effectively the Queensland government has just given a big free kick to the New South Wales producers. Um, that's, that's our opinion. And talk me through the, the numbers. What, what PE multiple does it trade on? Maybe a little bit about their balance sheet and their, their capital management initiatives. Yeah, sure, sure. So Whitehaven, um, at this point, they are um, totally debt-free. Um, <laughs> our estimate is that... Um, uh, you know, in terms of pre pre tax margins uh, for this last quarter, we estimate that they've probably earned um, about one point two billion dollars um, Aussie. Uh, this is pre tax, of course. So you know, post tax, you probably assume maybe yeah eight hundred million, and um, uh, that's for one quarter. I should add. So <laughs> you think on a market cap of what? Uh, of a market cap of about um, just over four bill. So. You know, pretty more or less, you know, one times pre-tax free cash flow it's trading at, or even slightly less. So um, I think that's just yeah, incredibly cheap. And um, I think one thing that is really pleasing to us is that the company have um, uh, started to return cash aggressively or value aggressively back to shareholders. So they've just um, they're at the tail end of a ten percent uh, buyback. So I think they bought back um, about. Uh, 360 million uh, odd shares on market. And they've actually just recently upsized that to 550 uh, million. So um, they, they, they still have a fair bit of capacity left and um, no doubt they'll probably start to buy back after they uh, release their next 
um, lot of results in a couple of weeks. And um, yeah, I, I just think that that's still just such a small drop in the ocean, um, given how much cash they've probably generated this last quarter. So um, I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, a lot more um, aggressive moves, you know, in terms of maybe more aggressive um, off-market style buybacks or greater dividends going forward. And um, it makes it a really compelling opportunity for us, I think. And you've been talking about this stock for a long time online at, at far cheaper levels. Yeah. Where, where do you feel like you are in the trade? Do you feel like you're 50% of the way through it? Do you feel like you're 80% through and you just got 20% of the cream to go? How are you sort of viewing it at this stage and what's been a, a highly successful trade for you? Yeah, absolutely. So I think we started talking about this uh, back in September, October last year. So it's been almost a year, but I think um, in that time, you know, it's been almost, uh, you know, it's been a significant return, <laughs> like well above 50 50 to 80%, I'd, I'd imagine. And I think that we are still in, you know, reasonably early, I'd say. I'd probably say that maybe you know, off the top of my head, I'd say we're maybe one third of the way through the trade. And um, I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that, well, A, earnings have um, definitely exploded um, in that time frame, but we've seen, um, uh, you know, the... the return in the stock itself has been you know in the 80 percent or or slightly above but um you know earnings have exploded by you know hundreds of percents <laughs> so i think that ultimately fundamentals uh have to win out um over time and uh so effectively the next leg up we think will be in the um pe or you know multiple expansion uh on these um uh you know significant earnings um I think that ultimately, you know, the market is perhaps uh, telling us that, you know, it's still undecided on whether or on the sustainability of these earnings itself. But I think that each month that goes along, each quarter that goes along, um, you know, we're just going to get um, more and more evidence that, um, you know, this situation um, in the market and for the company itself is perhaps going to go on for um, a lot longer than um, the market is perhaps giving the company credit for. So I think that, you know, at, at current pricing, it's um, highly attractive still. Um, you know, uh, we, we've been topping up at these prices, I must admit, because it's really um, just uh, one of the most compelling situations that we've seen uh, ever in our time in the markets. And um, uh, we're, we're more than prepared to uh, put our money where our mouth is. And other professional money managers that have to manage redemptions and think about monthly performance when they do get a big winner, they might be inclined to shave some out, maybe more so than a private investor that, that is prepared to have lumpier returns. Mm -hmm. Where do you sort of fit in that context? If, if this runs, do you generally shave some out and, and use that to allocate elsewhere? Or with the type of capital you've got invested, are you able to be a, uh, take on that volatility a bit more and, and hold for a longer term position? Yeah, look, we're, we're prepared to hold for the longer term. Um, you know, ultimately, we think that, um, you know, the stock could double from here and still look incredibly cheap. And, um, you know, we've seen uh, various sectors and industries go through periods of time where they, they are um, sort of perceived as unfashionable. And I think that the coal sector is really just going through <laughs> a similar sort of phase. But when, once, these, um, uh, once the sector does, um, come into fashion, that's when you see multiples increase materially. 
And I think, you know, probably at that time, you might think about taking off um, uh, a bit of um, the position. But um, ultimately, as long as the companies keep returning capital to shareholders and taking care of us, not doing silly things, then um, that's what we want to see. And that's where we want to be invested, ultimately. And um, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, just the, the opportunity itself is just so compelling. <laughs> I don't feel any uh, impetus to sort of um, try and trade around the position too much. And uh, yeah, I think it's just um, extraordinary. Thank you, mate. Well, it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a very interesting one. I think that whole ESG dynamic where people are going to have to perhaps choose between or understand that climate change is important, as is food security in third world countries, as is people not freezing to death in Europe. Yeah. And probably they're going to have to negotiate perhaps a more balanced approach to um to that whole whole ESG dynamic going forward because you know energy prices and food prices are just inextricably linked and yeah the potential coming food crisis looks like it's going to start in in three or four months around the world is um is going to be pretty horrible and if oil's closer to two hundred bucks rather than eighty bucks it's going to be a lot worse for those people so it's um it's an interesting complex time. Yeah, absolutely. And also one other factor that considers, um, yeah, we're seeing interest rate rises um, pretty aggressively across the board in all these Western economies. So, um, you know, I'd rather have my money sort of parked in um, something that um, is um, you know, returning double digits to investors <laughs> um, uh, over the, you know, over a period of, you know, say 12 months, um, rather than sitting in the bank. Um, uh, yeah, and, and just um, understanding that um, there probably is yeah, a real opportunity cost in not being invested in these sort of exposures. And um, ultimately, you know, as you point out, I think that um, ESG has made these investments uh, unpopular, but um, I think that's definitely going to change uh, going forward. Beauty. Thanks very much, Manuel. Thanks for coming back on the staff. No worries. Cheers, Chris. Thanks for having us. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan, who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.